0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Hello. And on the telephone by ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Hey, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing President Tsai Ing wen's upcoming state visit to the Caribbean, Kerwen Ji's travels to China to attend the Taipei Shanghai Twin City Forum, a bill banning former officials from China activities, a special visa for a Chinese student who criticized China's President Xi Jinping, and new drunk driving regulations taking effect. But we'll begin with the KMT's presidential primary ballot beginning next Monday, after the party wrapped up its televised presidential primary debates on Wednesday of this week, and the major focus of that debate in Taipei was the island's energy needs, with all five of the KMT's 2020 hopefuls saying that they'd start the mothballed number four nuclear power plant if elected, in order to ensure that there are no power shortages that could stymie Taiwan's economic development. While all five candidates agreed on the nuclear issue. There was some disagreement, however, over a proposal by Terry Gwar, who expounded on this proposal during the debate, and he plans to boost the birth rate by having the government shoulder the cost of bringing up children until the age of six, if he's elected next year. Now, Gwar has faced questions about this plan, and. He- face questions about the plan before the debate and during the debate, with both the DPP government and members of his own party asking where the money to pay the parents of children from the age of zero to six would actually come from. Now Guo's answer was simply he'd foot the bill to begin with until additional funding can be found. Now, pre-primary polls are still putting Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo Yu and Terry Guo as leading the five-way race for the KMT 2020 candidate, with former New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju in a rather distant third. Now, most of the polls that are being released aren't even showing the figures for former Taipei County Magistrate Zhou Shi Wei and National Taiwan University political science professor Zhang Ya Jong, the other two KMT 2020 hopefuls Now the KMT Central Standing Committee has said it will announce its presidential nominee on July the 17th after it's holding its polls which are taking place from next Monday through next Friday. so Ross they 'd all start the mothballed nuclear power plant number four. Good idea, bad idea. Is it even possible Well, this, this
1: is sort of kind of been a, a Dong policy position among their leading politicians. They've also obviously uh, going into and coming out of the local election last year, it was a position of, of Guomindang politicians to support that referendum, which also sort of kind of said that uh, we're okay with uh, restarting nuclear or not, not uh, mothballing or closing the uh, existing three plants. Uh, so uh, broadly speaking they 're just being consistent with the party position. Uh, you could sort of mix in other issues into that discussion, such as uh, there simply isn 't enough renewable energy, the needs of of uh, industry, especially with the efforts to bring Taiwan uh, companies back to Taiwan from China or other manufacturing locations in Southeast Asia. So, uh, uh, just like a number of other issues, such as uh, policy towards China, I think we see that all the the KMT candidates' uh, style might be a little different, but when it comes to a major policy issue like the, like nuclear power, they're broadly aligned. There isn't much uh, uh, space between their positions. Donovan.
0: Yeah, this is
2: this is one of those. Uh, it's this is one of those uh, one of those issues. Issues that that, that basically the pass back and forth between the parties. It seems, um, you know, the the KMT for it, they're against it, they're for it, they're against it. Um, it's you know, it, yeah, I, you know, Ross pretty much nailed it. They you know they're consistent right now because it's the current party party platform party thinking. Um, so yeah, they all came came out for it and. Um, there is some, there, there, it does make some sense in that the, the reserves right now are relatively low. Um, their, the energy needs are ramping up pretty quickly. Renewables are not going to start showing up in a major way until uh, a few years from now. But the thing is that even if they were to try and uh, kickstart, um, the, the fourth nuclear power plant, that's that's the big one um that one would take a while to bring online it'd be pretty expensive to to you know revitalize that progress by the by the time they have they have that they should have about 5.5 gig uh, gigawatts coming out of offshore wind now, of course when you say five that's capacity not actually what it'll deliver but you know the there should be quite a bit of a uh, renewable energy coming in by about 2025 2026 um, And that's probably a similar sort of timeline for getting the the fourth nuclear power plant going. So I think the bigger issue is decommissioning the first three.
0: Right, but Ross, is it impact possible to bring this nuclear power plant back online? Because they've shipped out most of the fuel rods back to the United States already.
1: Well, as Donovan indicated, it it would take an enormous amount of time and obviously would take an enormous amount of cost. And given the timeline to do that, it would certainly be susceptible to further political, um, I, don't, I don't want to necessarily call it interference, but intervention might be the right word because there could be another referendum <laughs> on the issue against it, you know, a more explicit referendum if uh, we were ever so lucky to have a simple referendum question, which just uh, was very understandable and clearly expressed the public's desire not to turn on number four uh, or to turn off numbers one, two and three. Uh, but but again, the referendum last year, uh, to the extent you believe, I believe that question was, again, sort of, kind of, to use my earlier word. In clear. It did sort of, kind of, indicate we should continue to use nuclear power. But to, to answer your question, Gavin, uh, it, it would take a long time and an enormous amount of money. Uh, is it technologically feasible? Of course, anything is. Uh, Taiwan does have an enormous amount of experience operating three nuclear power pans, plants and building a fourth that they didn't operate. So they certainly know what to do or how to do it um, they could drop a budget and get it through the legislative UN but again all of this would be susceptible to political intervention uh, I'll just make one more quick point though uh, they, understandable the candidates are reflecting what's broadly a goomingdong policy position what I think is unfortunate and it's just to the detriment of the conversation whether it's a conversation we're having on this show or the public conversation is th- these are very intelligent and capable gentlemen a I, 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 Think We all would be better off had they articulated more clearly. They don't have to get too technical. But but avoid the slogans, avoid the criticism of the government. But, but give us a bit more detail. You know, give the public, give the voters who are going to be answering those phone calls in the upcoming uh, uh, polling for the KMT primary. Uh, give us a bit more detail, a bit more explanation about why this is absolutely necessary so it doesn't come across as uh, government against it, we're for it, or uh, government policy really bad or too much pollution, thus nuclear. It, it, we're, we're, I feel that they haven't really sold it. Right? They haven't closed the sale. Uh, and that that's unfortunate just from a, a, a public policy perspective.
0: Ron right, Donovan, Terry Gore's idea to give child benefit to parents from children from the age of zero to six. He's going to Pay for it apparently in the early stages.
2: Yeah, and the kids will disappear once they become seven. Um, the, uh, I, the,
1: yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, Eric
2: too kind of hit him on that one uh, on some of the numbers um, uh, at the last uh, policy presentation thing the other night. Um, I, I, it does seem a little bit impractical uh, to cover all expenses. I, I suspect that if you if you were actually elected or pressed really hard on the details, he'd probably come up with something that's a little bit more along the lines, we'll cover some or a bunch of the costs that would be higher than what is being currently covered. Um, but not quite everything because I, I don't see them you know it being feasible for the government to come up with it and also what you know what is a reasonable cost for you know a four year old you know what does that include and what does it not include so I mean there's also some leeway there in, in that he could say covering all the costs that could be you know the food and electricity you know and some clothing but doesn't include school uh, you know so there's a lot of variables in there so I, I
0: think He's got a lot of wiggle
1: room. And Ross, he said
0: he's going to pay for it himself in the early stages.
1: Well, that certainly would be a bit unusual to have uh, a wealthy individual pay for something so potentially enormous for for the public benefit. I suppose we should welcome that. However, it would certainly be even more unusual if it was the elected president who was uh, personally covering these kinds of costs. I will say this, unlike my earlier comment with regard to the the nuclear issue, it, it's good that people are getting into the details of an important public policy position or issue. And it's also very good that uh, the Kuomintang candidates could have a conversation about something other than China policy or even Mm -hmm. nuclear policy so that uh, the public policy discussion more broadly, whether it's within the Kuomintang primary process or just uh, the the broader public policy space, we could talk about some other issues. So I, I think that's very positive and going into the presidential election, regardless of who who wins the KMT primary. So if Go, if Goh wins the primary, he'll continue to talk about this. If someone else should win, whether it's Han or Drew they're probably going to be stuck with talking about this as well, because they they made some counter proposals during this primary. So the good thing here is this will be part of the public policy discussion during the general election period. And it's an indicator that there's an appetite among the public for their politicians to talk about day to day issues that impact families or or children. That's a positive, right? We're not only going to talk about China. And that's also a bit of a warning to to President Tsai. You can't make the election action only about China-related issues, sovereignty, Taiwan identity. There's other issues that are of interest to voters.
0: Right, and moving on, and we'll talk about President Tsai Ing-wen now, who will be jetting off to Taiwan's Caribbean allies later this month, and she'll be visiting Haiti, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Lucia and St. and Nevis from July the 11th through the 22nd. Now, while some of the headlines in Taiwan mention this, most of the headlines in the international media said Tsai ing to visit America. Which is, of course, she's going to transit there as per usual, but the headlines were all she's going to visit America. Ross.
1: Well, uh, of course, there's all this speculation about whether or not she was going to visit Washington, D.C. There are members of Congress pushing it. Uh, nothing should surprise us. You know, if she should divert to Washington, D.C. and show up there. Uh, I think we could only make that uh, analysis or determination after she transits, whether it's inbound to the Caribbean or outbound to the Caribbean. But there's another important aspect here, Gavin, as you know very well. Because we talked about this on the show when it happens. In recent years, there's a pattern of China looking to humiliate Tsai England when she goes overseas, either before, during or after the trip. After the trip might be the time when they trip up a, a diplomatic ally of Taiwan and persuade them to change relations. It's what they did last summer. So after she made an overseas trip in the, later in August, uh, El Salvador suddenly de-recognized Taiwan. So we have to keep in mind the potential for that in the aftermath of her trip.
2: And the thing that really jumped out at me at this is four days. Uh, she's expected to spend four days in the U.S., which is a, quite a while. It's, it's, now, it's two separate stays. I mean, she's going to be in New York for a couple of days, and she's going to be in Denver. Now, my suspicion Is New York could have, could have two possible implications. One is just simply as a DPP presidential candidate. That's where the, you know, there's a lot of uh, big money DPP pro-independent supporters uh, in New York City. Uh, The other is, of course, the UN is headquartered in New York City. so there could be some efforts there to work on, uh, you know, WHO, WHA inclusion, that sort of thing. But that a lot could happen in four days is very interesting. The other thing is, is she's, she's transiting also via denver now of course that puts her right in the center of the country whereas generally traditionally she goes you know the uh, taiwanese presidents go through the periphery they go through hawaii which she went through last time los angeles um and this time she's going straight smack dab right into the center of the country which is there is a little bit of symbolism to that um uh, now, how significant it'll be I don't know, but it's an interesting place to pick now the other thing is is that the governor the Governor of Wyoming uh in spite of a, a big spat with the mayor of Cheyenne but uh the Governor of Wyoming is doing is apparently working really hard and is publicly very hopeful at getting the President of Taiwan to visit uh his state um and he's working with the the State Department on trying to make this happen. So this is interesting. So, you know, as Ross noted, where she may show up or turn up during those four days, and again, that's what really jumped out at me, four days. Uh, you know, it, it, that's a lot of space and a lot of time for a lot to happen.
0: Of course, but, D- Denver and New York do have to be confirmed, Ross. But, I mean, obviously understandable what Donovan said about New York. But why on earth would – I'm going to say this as an English person – why on earth would anyone go to
1: Denver? Well, last year she went to Houston, all right? So I think I would say she's – she has experience going through the center of the country, although it's in the south. Uh Chen Shui-bian also went to Houston, uh, he did he went to a you know a Texan style meal and and i think a baseball game if i recall correctly with the then congressman uh, delay tom delay who subsequently had some legal trouble uh, but uh, that that got a lot of news attention right my good friend chun Shui Bien, we're going to treat him like a president Wen got a, a a motorcade by headed by the the houston police and went to nasa and the foreign minister, Joseph Wu of Taiwan, immediately sent a tweet that said, Houston, we have a president, uh, which uh, he may have thought was entertaining. But for Americans, is, is a, you know not, uh, not, not very uh, eye-catching, actually, because the Houston, we have a line has been used uh, way too many times over the course of the last few decades. Uh, so I certainly encourage the foreign minister to be a bit more careful with his tweets and, and think about what the content, uh, because we know he'll be tweeting a lot during this trip. Uh, but uh, Denver, you, you could congregate a lot of people. Um, that might be one motivation. You could co- easily congregate staff from the various tech rows in the, in the western half of the United States. It would be very convenient for them to to call in all the, the office heads or what we would call for other countries, uh, consul generals. Uh, you could also congregate Taiwanese uh, Americans from the western part of the United States, uh, other politicians who might be uh, American politicians, who who might be uh, nearby. It would also, again, be easy. There's a big airport, a lot of flight connections. Uh, so something to watch would be who comes to see her in Denver, you know, senators, representatives, people along those lines. So it might have just been a very centralized location for her to go to. And, and uh, the precedent, just to say we've added one more city beyond San Francisco, L.A., Houston, New York, uh, Boston has been a, a stopover in the past for Taiwan presidents. Uh, I suppose anywhere that's not Anchorage, uh, because that comes with a bit of humiliation, given it, it it's remote. No, no, no disrespect to the people of of Anchorage, uh, but but given how remote Anchorage was, it was considered a bit of a insult to Chen Shui-bian when he was told you could only go through Anchorage. But that was after his pattern of uh, very high profile events during his New York trips, which had violated the understanding that the Taiwan government had with the Bush administration at the time.
0: Right, moving on to cross strait issues now, where we're actually going to stay for a while during this show. But we'll begin with Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhur in Shanghai this week for the annual Twin City Forum. And true to predictions by Kerr before he jetted off to Shanghai, comments made by him at the event. Well, they've sparked some iry feelings here in Taiwan. Now the Mainland Affairs Council on Thursday criticised Kerr for once again describing the Taiwan-China relationship as being one big happy family. I added the happy for poetic purposes there. Anyway, Kerr made that analogy at the opening of the forum, and it came after Shanghai Mayor Ying Yong also chose to say that both sides are from one family across the strait. Now, Mainland Affairs Council Deputy Minister Chou Chui Jung said that Kerr's statement is far removed from the reality of Beijing's unification agenda towards Taiwan, and he went on to say that local government heads should act and speak in a manner that reflects public opinion. Sir so Donovan, of course, Mayor Kerr predicted whatever he would say there was going to cause some irony Feelings, and it did. Uh,
2: Yeah, he basically said that, you know, I mean, he was talking about specifically about meeting with uh, Liu Qiei, but, uh, you know, he said basically, you know, I'm going to be. I'm going to be criticized if I do. Criticized if I don't. Um, now he's another. He, here's an interesting thing that the you know the MAC a a spokesman for for them came out and said exchanges embedded with quote political passwords cannot serve as a model for cross strait interactions. I, I thought that was an interesting statement because essentially what. Um, uh he, what Koenza is trying to do is he's trying to come up with his own you know, his, his own political passwords, his own catchphrases that mollify China. Because China apparently needs you know, some kinds of some kind of code words uh to make them feel happy. Obviously the ninety two consensus has been uh the one the KMT has been using for quite some time. Now Koenso can't use ninety two consensus because that's been trademarked by the KMT. Um and, of course, uh, the DPP has refused to play this political password game, and so they're not getting along well with China at all. Um, so he's trying to come up with his own secret, his, his own secret passwords or not-so-secret passwords to the club. Uh, and I guess it seems to be, you know, we're all one big, as you put it, happy family, which is, of course, kind of meaningless. Um although it's slightly i don't know if it's slightly more or slightly less specific than the 1992 consensus um so yeah we'll i mean we'll see if, if china seems to be nibbling but not full on biting yet as far as that that's concerned and g- overall right now kuangjo has been trying to I, what i call take a taipei centrist view when it comes to cross strait relations um in other words, he's not really in the mainstream of Taiwan, but he's kind of mainstream Taipei um in building better relations with China. Uh and the other thing is is that you know this he's been playing this kind of international diplomacy game for a little while now with China, uh which I, I is iffy. he's not very good at it. He's he's very good at cutting through nonsense and red tape. Uh, when dealing with the city government, but dealing with nonsense and red tape is not exactly how you deal with China in diplomatic circles. That's that's a very, very different, uh, uh, a very, very different uh, proposition. And this is not really his area of expertise. And, and and he's a local government head. So the the central government is obviously a little bit concerned, and probably should be.
1: I think the central government's just a little bit jealous that he, he's come up with some wording that allows him to have interactions with China. My gosh, all he said was mutual understanding and respect and we could do stuff that, that is for the benefit of, of, of our people. Now, to use Donovan's point, he may have been referring only to the people of Taipei City and not all 23 million people on Taiwan, but that's his job. His job is to look out for the interests of, of the people of Taipei City. It's not like he talked about reaching a peace agreement or, or was demanding or, or, or uh, talking about military tensions and demanding that that China uh, do something unrealistic like, like redeploy its, its missiles away from the Chinese coast. I mean, he just didn't get into those issues. He's stuck within the lane of things that I think are, are within his job scope. But whatever he said what was going to get criticized by the central government here. It's not clear to me, though, what exactly the central government really wanted him to do. Just not go? Then just say it. Just say, we ban you from going or we strongly discourage you from going. Uh, but but to expect him to, to slam the podium with his fist and say, well, again, it's not clear what, what the central government would have wanted him to say. You want him to slam the podium and say ROC forever? Well, he's not going to do that. We already know the guy is, doesn't even share the Goldman position as, as Donovan Mention right. I mean, he's he's certainly closer to the DPP than the than he is to the KMT when it comes to the nature of the relationship between China and Taiwan.
0: Maybe he could have called it one big estranged, dysfunctional family.
1: (laughs) It sounds good in English. A bit, a bit odd in Mandarin. I'm trying to think what it would sound like in Mandarin. Uh, they're, they're, you have to keep in mind the, the style of those those Chinese communist officials, right? They're all typically very dour. Uh, I think their mouths would have dropped to an even more dour and sour look had he said that.
0: Anyway, on that note, we'll take a short break, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and lawmakers this week passed an amendment to the Act governing relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area, and now the amendment bans certain retired high-ranking military officers and senior political appointees from engaging in political activities in China. And if you want to know who it actually affects, well, it affects military officers ranked Major General or higher, Deputy Chiefs and Chiefs of the Defence and Foreign Ministries, the Mainland Affairs Council and the National Security Bureau, as well as the heads of intelligence agencies. And they're all going to be banned from attending political or military events organised by the Chinese government. Now, those found in violation of this new law, well, they face having their pensions suspended or cut and a fine of up to 10 million NT. Now, the government says the new law will affect some 2,000 retirees from those positions. Now, Ross, you're often a critic of these laws they introduce banning cross-strait exchanges.
1: Well the the problem as often is the case in Taiwan is there were existing laws the issue was enforcement or lack thereof so now we'll just rewrite the laws the, the big problem now is, and this is not the only law that has been recently revised with this issue in mind, so there's other national security secrets-related laws that have been revised to try to cover these issues. What we're, we're potentially looking at you know, is overlapping laws that make it really difficult, again, to enforce when we should have just had uh, better enforcement of the existing laws. And then there's also going to be the inevitable uh, debate. And it's a little late because the law has already been passed about the uh, p- potential infringement on free speech or freedom of movement. So, to the extent that you are restricting someone's freedom of movement, uh, you're saying you can't leave the country without uh, an application, and you can't absolutely cannot go to China. And we've now extended those periods where where the previous laws were a bit flexible. Uh, and you're saying you can't speak out. Uh, look, there, there's a lot of people in Taiwan who still favor unification uh, or favor the status quo, um, depending on which poll you believe. Uh, unification still polls in the in the teens. Um, that understandably might include people who used to serve in government or in the military. Uh, that's their personal view. They're entitled to it, even if the majority disagrees with it. So then we're going to get into a debate about, well, I, I said I support unification, but I didn't say something in, in support of the Communist Party or, or, or the central government in, in China, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think we're, we have some issues here with overlapping and poorly drafted laws. But we'll only know when there actually is a prosecution, and that takes us back to my earlier point: it was really the lack of enforcement of the, of the existing laws. So it's going to be up to the the relevant agencies and ultimately prosecutors and judges to actually bring a bring a prosecution against someone and try and enforce these strengthened. Uh, uh, sections of the various laws.
0: and Of course, Donovan. Several of the KMT candidates hoping to be president next year have said that they plan to reverse certain laws that the DPP has put into effect. Do you think this could be one of them?
2: Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they if they if they wanted to tone it down. The thing is that if they actually did, that would open themselves up to a lot of criticism. Um, now, uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, there's actually several overlapping issues with, uh, with, uh, with these laws. Uh, some of the problems I think, uh, Ross alluded to, I mean, of course, you know, what, you know, what exactly is, you know, at what point is this just simply limiting free speech and free action and, and, and positive interactions? On the other hand, uh, you know, they, they did increase Regulations related to people who have had access to classified information. Um, I think that's a a sensible national security issue. Um, There's, but it also wanders into the tricky area, which they did, you know, explicitly mention, is, you know, related to the dignity of the nation. Um, In other words, it's a little bit of of a weird situation of. Uh, Taiwanese politicians or government officials going to a foreign nation and showing obsequious behavior or honoring the uh, you know the state symbol- symbols or uh, ideology of that nation when that nation is threatening you militarily um, <clears throat> you know the, the, the I guess the closest analogy I could I can come up with is well, you know when the Americans would go you'd have some who'd go to the Soviet Union and and uh you know would be a, a show of obsequious behavior toward toward national symbols there but then again the US didn't ban that um but it's because taiwan and china have a kind of a weird relationship of course uh with a lot of the generals and and so on and so forth are still very pro one china um you know and there there's they are the military you know a lot of these generals are ironically enough the representatives of the only standing military for china because of course the people's liberation army in china are actually the armed wing of the communist party so it's kind of a weird situation
0: there and of course Ross, it makes it difficult if, if obviously an official does go to china and they play the chinese from the prc national anthem does the official then not stand up and look like a bit of a plonker and possibly be banned from going to china
1: well they get to- it To go to my earlier point, will they be prosecuted? So uh, anyone who falls within the the defined or the covered group of former uh, civilian or military officials, if they are at such an event – uh they stand up uh, they might they might be subject to prosecution uh but you know, gavin you, you offend my dignity nearly every time I'm on the show but I, I don't go crying to the prosecutors seeking justice uh so uh, is, as gavin sorry as donovan pointed out you know, th- there is a risk of of kind of unclear vague definitions of what might be a crime and, and then we're going to uh, potentially prosecute people for that uh it, it seems to be as much about electoral politics here in Taiwan, right? We're the tough-on-China pol- uh, party, and if you're not for it, then you're obviously against it, and you're obviously thus in support of the Communist Party takeover of Taiwan. I mean, that's that, that's clearly the narrative that, that the DPP and, and the president want to put into the uh, public discussion space going into the election, which is only six months away.
0: And, Donovan, I believe the KMT did actually say that about this law. It's basically they're playing politics ahead of the election.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. I mean, um, you know, from a purely uh, uh, political calculation point, I think Ross is 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 absolutely correct. I mean, the the DPP, uh, the the, Taiwan's position um, on national sovereignty is pretty close to the median uh, in Taiwan public opinion, Um, and it's and so she's playing, and every time she does something that shows. Strength or against China, and, and this is something that's been true going all the way back to Lee Dong is, is that when, you know, when the leader stands up to China and shows some strength, people tend to rally around the flag and rally around the leader. Um, and so, yeah, the you know the this is the the DPP equivalent of wrapping themselves in the flag. That that that's really kind of what it boils down to. The KMT equivalent of wrapping themselves up in the flag is more literal. They literally will wrap themselves up in, in, in the ROC flag. Um, but the, 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 those are roughly the equivalents that they're, they're dealing with. So yeah, there, there's a lot of electoral politics going
0: on here. Right, now the Mainland Affairs Council this week, on Tuesday in fact, granted a special student visa to a 21-year-old Chinese student who applied for long-term residency in Taiwan after he criticised China's President Xi Jinping in a live stream video in March. Now Li Jiabao is an exchange student at Tainan's Jianan University of Pharmacy and Science and his visa actually expired on Tuesday, which is why the Mainland Affairs Council gave him a special student visa. Now Ross, we've talked about this before, when it actually happened, when he came here seeking asylum now they've given him a special student visa to say another six months but of course then you get what's going to happen after six months and this takes us down the line of what the the government seem to be dithering around with these people that are seeking asylum but they can't get asylum so what do they do
1: well the easiest solution would be to uh remain in taiwan as a student or in the case of uh lam wing he the bookseller from hong kong uh, seek employment and there are existing regulations and either you qualify or you don't. Either you're both the employer as well as the potential foreign employee qualify or, or you don't. You're, you, either you qualify to hire – your company is large enough, et cetera, uh, to hire a foreigner and you meet the, the qualifications for being, for getting such employment. Or you don't. And, and uh, that would be the safest solution for the government because then they don't have to give anyone asylum on a case-by-case basis. As we've talked about previously, Gavin, uh, currently there, there is no legal uh, basis. There is no law to give asylum to people from China or Hong Kong. So it's handled on a case-by-case basis. As I'm sure many of the listeners remember, there's also no general political asylum law. Uh, There's one that's been in the legislative UN for a number of years, but it hasn't progressed. But that law was drafted specifically to exclude people from uh, China, Hong Kong, and Macau. Very interesting, Gavit, just this week, uh, in the aftermath of the the events in Hong Kong, there is now a a movement, uh, people in the human rights community are saying, we should pass an asylum law that specifically gives asylum to people from Hong Kong, uh, so that we're going to start giving asylum to people who participated in invading the LegCo in Hong Kong. I I personally think that would be uh, a peculiar outcome for Taiwan to start granting asylum to people simply because they participated in street protests uh, or may have even been arrested for participating in a a street protest uh, because there are basic crimes that you commit when you uh, engage in street protests, such as disturbing the peace. Uh, To me, that's, that's not really a basis for an asylum claim. Uh, be that as as it may, the government needs to confront this, and uh, they seem to be, as, as you said, Gavin, kind of seeking a, a safe way out. Okay, we'll let him extend his student visa, uh, or we'll tell Mr. Lamb to get to get an employment visa. Uh, but but there's this risk of of being overwhelmed with these claims, and you, you'll get into the situation where uh, Chinese students will say, "Oh, well, I, I I decide I don't like China. I, I'd like to make a life in Taiwan, so I'm just going to take to." To Facebook or other social media, and and say that Xi Jinping is 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 a terrible person, and and then I'll ask for asylum here, and I'll get it. Uh, So, the the public needs to be a bit more engaged in this issue as well. They should not cede it to. Uh, politicians in the legislative UN or, or people in, in the human rights community only, I think the public needs to be a bit engaged. You know, do they want ten, hundreds, or potentially thousands of asylum seekers coming from Hong Kong and, and China? If they do, that's fine, but, but it really should be something that receives a sufficient amount of public discussion.
0: Donovan, a topic for a referendum, maybe?
2: Possibly. Um, I mean, the, the, they've just changed the referendum law in such a way that it makes it hard for anything to pass um so i'm not really sure that it's it's open to a, I, and I, you know I, i'm not i'm not sure that uh, you know this, this is i'm not sure anything right now is going to do well if if you put it to a referendum um i i think that one way or another the government ha- is going to have to come to a conclusion on this they're going to have to provide uh, clear guidelines on asylum, and you know what apply. You know what a, you know what can account for asylum, and what can't. There needs to be an asylum law of some of some type. Um, you know, Taiwan does quite a bit in the international community, and you know talks quite a bit about how it's a, a responsible member of the international community. This is one of these holes um, that Taiwan kind of needs to plug if it wants to. You know. Uh, portray itself as a, as a as a model internationally and as a good as a good international citizen um, and the you know the but there needs to be some clear guidelines um you know as ross alluded to you, you know there could be a situation where people just simply show up uh, you know they they get off the plane and say you know death to xi jinping and and you know I want asylum I, I, you know, there there needs to be some clear uh, some clear guidelines on what would qualify someone and what doesn't um, i i don't think that uh, civil disobedience in a in a foreign country is something that should disqualify them uh, quite often that's exactly what you need to do especially when you're dealing with a a repressive uh, situation which it's iffy right now whether Hong Kong you know, would meet that qualification but the you know the the I guess the point being is there does need to be a law in place. There needs to be standards that can be applied so that going forward you don't have a situation like this student Where, you know, did he do it on a whim? Did he do it intentionally? Is he trying to game the system? Is he trying – you know, know, there's so many – we don't really know what what this student is up to or why he's doing it. For now, because there are no standards and because there are no guidelines, the government kind of should, I I suppose, uh, you know, give this kid some leeway. But going forward, so that this situation, if it comes up again – They should have clear guidelines in place so that, you know, people know where they stand and the government knows how to act when something like this comes up.
0: Right, and before we go this week, new increased fines for drunk driving came into effect this Monday following the lawmakers passing amendments to the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act. Now, motorists and motorcyclists convicted of DUI offences... Well, they're now facing, basically, the biggest fine is 210,000 NT. After your third offence, passengers in vehicles driven by a drunk driver are liable to fine of up to 3,000 NT. People who failed, or refuse, rather, to take breathalyzer or blood tests face a fine of 180,000 NT. And people on bicycles caught riding under the influence of alcohol will, for the first time, be liable to fine of up to 1,200 NT. But... Obviously, this Ross is part of the government's plans to actually crack down completely on drunk driving. Do you think these fines are enough or other actions should be taken?
1: Other actions should be taken. This goes back to enforcement issues, right? Too many people were getting away with this. Uh, It comes up every few months when there's a a horrific accident or or crash or or deaths. Um, And it's been a long-running problem, Uh, the the Statistics, you know, the number of road deaths, deaths from accidents, um, or DUI-related incidents on, on the roads is still alarmingly high. Uh, so it's it's also an educational culture issue. You know, whenever there's any type of uh, traffic incident, whether it's involving the the, the buses or, or other other matters, you know, we always talk about the lack of a safety culture. In Taiwan, or things that could be done to improve the safety culture. Simply passing uh, or enacting into law larger fines, or saying, "Oh, we're we're going to find the passengers as well." It's probably not enough. Right? There are other people in the in the chain here: restaurants, bars, for example. Restaurant staff, bar servers, um, who who provide the drinks to to patrons who then get in a car. Car parking attendants, uh, if it's a, a garage that's manned by, by personnel, not not automatic, uh, the the automated uh, breath breathalyzer devices uh, can mandate those to be installed in, in vehicles. That that would be a, a great solution, and certainly something Taiwan is capable of, given Taiwan's enormous and impressive capabilities with, with technology and, and even uh, advances with autonomous vehicles. I and mean, these are this is a space that Taiwan is really good at. Uh, so there are other things that could be done rather than the somewhat cosmetic uh, just say, oh, we'll increase the fines.
0: Donovan, so there you go. Fines enough or more action taken?
2: <laughs> I, I think this, this is just um the the you know the the fines were pretty high already um and increasing the fines th- this is very very much along the lines of you know the government wants to be able to say oh we're doing something it's it, it's not they're not really dealing with the the root causes and that the you know to really make their point they they can do what they could have easily done two things one is increase education on the issue and the second is to uh you Conduct more to, to do more enforcement. I guess more more road checks, more of this this sort of thing. Raising the fines doesn't really change anything. Now, it, creating a situation where you're penalizing passengers. Now that moves into a whole tricky area here. I mean that is, you know, does the person know? Does the person not know? Did the, you know, did they have a, you know, a chicken soup which had some alcohol in it and thereby, you know, because they went to a wedding or went to a banquet and then suddenly the person who happens to be in the car with them is being fined who may or may not even knew that the person had the soup. I mean, it, it, the, the, this is moving into an area here which is absurd and penalizing somebody for being in the same vehicle as somebody else uh, you know who may or may not have who they may or may not know had alcohol because of how much alcohol is consumed in hot pots and soups and things like that or may or, or may or may not have known whether or not they crossed the line I, you know are, are we going to sit and say well okay I, now let's see you're you're a male above a certain weight that means that the you know your legal limit is is two beers but if you're below a certain weight so what's your weight again how many beers have you, this is this is this is absurd penalizing the the, the passengers it it goes it, it goes outside outside of the realm of a clear act of 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 a crime it's it's punishing people for just simply being bystanders in a lot of cases Ron, um, so that's ridiculous and then moving on People on bicycles—they want to—they want to find people on bicycles. Uh, This, to me, is is ridiculous. Somebody on a bicycle who's drunk is not going to kill anybody. You can't ride a bicycle into somebody and kill them. Uh, It's understandable if you put in laws relating, you know, when you're considering somebody driving a car. But a bicycle, Um, you know, in a lot of for a lot of people, using the bicycle is a is considered the safe alternative. To driving a car, Um, you know, they're they're only a danger to themselves and not a danger to other people.
0: And Ross, very briefly.
1: Yeah, one quick point uh, is is also, uh, as far as education, let's make an example of people, not just on the criminal side, but even the DPP, in their leadership, in their legislators, they have several politicians who have been convicted of DUI uh, crimes. They should have a no-tolerance policy. Throw them out. No second chance for politicians who, who actually have this on a record on their record. Let's make an example out of them.
0: And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold.
1: Have a great weekend.
0: And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. Hey, right, have a great great evening. Who won't be riding a bicycle if he's been drinking? Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.